Hello, everyone. I'm so glad that you have joined us for the Sunday Forum at St. Luke's Episcopal Church in downtown Atlanta. I'm Ed Baker, the interim rector, and it is my great honor to have a two-part conversation with the legendary James Lawson. Uh, the world knows Jim recently because of his very stirring and evocative eulogy at the funeral of John Lewis here in Atlanta at Ebenezer Baptist Church recently. And the reason he was chosen to do that is because he was John Lewis's teacher, teacher of nonviolence. And he and Martin Luther King Jr. were close friends. They met when they were 28 and Jim is about to turn 92. Martin Luther King was the instrument through which the Holy Spirit called Jim Lawson to leave Ohio and come south. We unpack all of that and the heartbeat of his message, that of nonviolence. That's what we spend the first hour doing. I want you to know that this is longer than our normal 45 minutes. If you need to take a break and see this later on, I do want to just prepare you for a whirlwind tour of the passions of this amazing Methodist minister of nonviolence. And the second part delves more into his relationship with John Lewis and all of the different movements in the civil rights movement of nonviolence. So I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. Let's get started. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Forum at St. Luke's Episcopal Church in downtown Atlanta. I'm Ed Bacon, the interim rector, and I have the very great honor, both this Sunday and next Sunday, conduct or facilitate a two-part conversation with the Reverend Dr. James Lawson. The whole world saw him recently give a very moving and evocative eulogy at the funeral of John Lewis here in Atlanta at Ebenezer Baptist Church. I have known Dr. Lawson, uh, whom I call Jim and he calls me Ed, for almost 30 years. Uh, we were colleagues in the peace and justice movement in Los Angeles County, where for many years he was the senior pastor of Holman United Methodist Church. And so it is out of that friendship and that collegiality that we are having our conversation today. And I know him to be and I know he will not appreciate this word, but he's a legend in the whole arena of civil rights and making sure that the civil rights movement was based in nonviolence. So in this first conversation, we're gonna talk about the essence of nonviolence, Satyagraha, um, Mohandas Gandhi, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and the early days of the Nashville movement, which established uh, nonviolence as the method for civil rights change. But before we get into all of that, 
Let's first uh, simply greet Jim Lawson. Thank you, Dr. Lawson, for being with us. Uh, it's wonderful to see you, Ed, and to have this conversation with you again. Thank you. Thank you. You, you have been retired from uh, leading Holman United Methodist Church for how many decades now? Uh, I've been retired for 20 years, actually. <laughs> 21 years. And you have had a very active retirement period, continuing to teach the essence of uh, your understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, yes, that's right. Of course, I, I happen to think, as this has occurred to me, as this has happened to me, that uh, the call of God um, into life and ministry and work is an eternal call. Uh -huh. <laughs> and it's in God's hands. Yes. <laughs> it represents <laughs> not my hands. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so so uh, retirement uh, uh, has only meant that I no longer am in charge of a parish. Um, but it hasn't meant that I am therefore doing nothing. <laughs> yeah, period. I, I am laughing with deep recognition mm -hmm. at what you are describing. Yeah. Our, our, our lives are not in our hands. That's right. That's yeah. right. And uh, obviously God is able. God is able every day. Well, Jim, let's go back in time. Um, I, I want to kind of say three things and ask you to uh, either correct the first two and then jump into the third or respond however you want. But I do want to simply state that as a young man, you served more than 12 months in prison because you refused to cooperate with the war against Korea. And then after that, you spent three years in India where you went deep into understanding the whole thinking of Gandhi, nonviolence, and Satyagraha. And then you were gonna go in another direction with finishing up your education. And all of that got interrupted when you were 28, meeting at Oberlin at dinner, another 28 year old named Martin Luther King Jr and he implored you to abandon all your academic plans and come to the South immediately, and then you went to Nashville. You wanna just say anything that you want to about those three moments, which I think are so formative. 14 months in prison, three years in India, and then that amazingly choreographed by the Holy Spirit meeting with Martin King when you both were 28 years old. Well, I'm not sure where to begin, because in some ways, uh, I maintain that I've that I have had no, I had really no choice. That uh, my life, from age four, as I learned to look back upon it in high school and college and beyond, um, 
I was essentially awakened and called to ministry at that time, though I did not know that and did not put it that way. Um, growing up um, in a family that was greatly devoted to the church and to the gospel of Jesus, my father, I grew up and I became aware at age four in my dad's parish, St. James Amy, Amy Zion Church in Massillon, Ohio, where, to which dad was appointed shortly after my fourth birthday. Uh, so uh, I recall uh, learning the songs that have directed my life, Go Down Moses, uh, spiritual. Uh, oh Mary, don't you weep, no, don't you mourn, Pharaoh's army got drowned it. <laughs> I learned those songs, Wade in the Water, in, in, as, in children's choir <laughs> at St. James and in church services. So um, that um, set me in a course that fundamentally I hardly began to recognize until high school and college. Yeah. Um, by the time I was in high school, um, I knew that I would not obey any racial prejudice or segregation laws. And actually, my time in jail and federal government was an extension of that. Because after I registered at age 18 for the then Selective Service Act, I registered with some hesitation and I wrote on the margins of that eight by 11 form um, that uh, I didn't know if I was doing the right thing, but I was registering anyway at age 18 as commanded by the law. But within about two years time, I was convinced that the selective service law was an unjust law like segregation laws. And I actually refused to obey the selective service law because it met, met, it met the categories of being a law that I could not obey and should not obey. Got it. Um, it had nothing to do with the Vietnam War happening. Actually, that was in June of 1950. Yeah. Because I was in a, a Midwestern regional United Methodist youth camp in Clear Lake, Iowa, when the announcement of that war um, uh, was made. And uh, so that's how I remember that the war started in June. But I had sent my draft cards back in 48 or 49. Uh, uh, in those two years, as I continued to pray and wrestle with Jesus and with the scriptures over a life that... Uh, would not accept segregation and racism and pledged to fight it all my days. Yes. 
and then with uh, disobeying laws that contradiction contradicted Jesus um, and the work of God's kingdom. So that that experience in in jail was not over the question of war. <laughs> I get it. It was over the question of unjust laws, which as a one trying to follow Jesus, I had to recognize as unjust and unfair, and therefore I would not give it any respect. That's an important corrective. Oh if yes, you, absolutely. Reading your, your life, you would think that you were making an act of against war and you were making an act toward justice. That's right. Yes, exactly right. It, it, was, it was one of those laws that I saw I was supposed to obey, but that I had to say, no, I cannot obey it because you, uh, it's a law in contradiction to the kingdom of God in contradiction to the conscience that was in me on these matters. So, um, um, now as I finished college in 1951-52, 1950 actually, 51, 51 was my college graduate year, uh, I um, had decided that I was going to work overseas. Uh, the Methodist Church was offering college graduates positions around the world to teach in various ways in high schools and even colleges. So I was signed up to go to Africa in 1950. I had been accepted by our board of mission, board of missions, and was uh, you know preparing to do uh, summer work in 1951, and uh, and then take off for a teaching position in a high school in what is now. Um, um, well, <laughs> the name of the country, I think it, it was then Southern Rhodesia, but it is now um, Mozambique. No, 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 not Mozambique. That's um, Harare is the capital city. <laughs> yeah. Harare is the capital city. So I was going to go to near to a school near Harare, Africa. Anyway, um, but in fall of 1950, I was arrested by the FBI because the warrant has been had been issued against me. And in April of 51, my trial was held in Cleveland, Ohio in federal court and I was sentenced to three years in federal prison for disobeying the draft act. A violation of the draft act was the technical term, a felony uh, conviction. And so I was sent promptly April of 1951 to um, Mill Point, West Virginia, a, a federal honor camp in the jungle. Um, I was accused of being a troublemaker in that prison and transferred to a federal penitentiary in um, 
Ashland City, Kentucky, where I finished off uh, 13 months and then um, I was paroled, which was unexpected actually. But the Board of Missions and a number of bishops of the Methodist Church and a number of other people had organized a defense committee on my behalf. And they sought to get the judge and the Justice Department to parole me to uh, the Board of Missions, which they refused because the Justice Department, the federal case said that he's a youth leader and he must, we must use him as an example to try to stop other people from doing this. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, long story. But in any case, then, when I finished my 13 months or so, in May of 1952, I went back and finished my final quarter at Baldwin Wallace College in Berea, Ohio. And then um, went off to do the uh, work of orientation and learning in preparation to go to India. Uh, not able to go to Africa. That job was filled by somebody else. But then 50, 51, the church was um, recruiting college graduates to go to Asia in, in one spot in India, Nagpur, India. A college by the was college called Nag Nagpur uh, Hislop College was there, and that president David Moses wanted an athlete to come and teach um, physical education and do some coaching, and so I eagerly was able to obtain that position and went off uh, uh, and. Uh, Jawaharlal Nehru was the Prime Minister of India and they were um, um, shutting down on missionary uh, entries into India with which I concurred incidentally <laughs> and uh, so it took a little while before my uh, visa was applied uh, they wanted folk coming in as missionaries who were offering certain skills that the society needed rather than being missionaries for conversion of Indian oh, people. Yeah, that, that right. was they wanted, they wanted engineers and agricultural workers and they wanted teachers who taught science and math and they, and they, wanted, and they, were, they uh -huh. were pleased to have me come to represent some of the coaching skills out of the United States on phys ed, basketball, especially in tennis. So uh, I, I had uh, three wonderful years in India and I chose to go ahead and go overseas to teach in order to get a view of myself and the Christian faith and the gospel of Jesus in another, in another different world setting. Yeah. Uh, an environment. Um, so that was one of my major motives. And well, Jim, Jim, one would assume or intuit that while you were in India for those three years, that there was something going on to deepen your commitment to nonviolence. 
is that yes. is that yes, that's right i i started uh, reading gandhi in uh, 1947 okay. as a freshman in college i started reading his autobiography uh, which had been brought to my attention, in fact, by A.J. Musty yes. in a lecture that he did at Baldwin Wallace. And I went immediately and got the autobiography and began studying Gandhi. And out of that experience in 47, 48, I realized I was not a pacifist. I was a nonviolent practitioner. Got it. And I recognized that primarily because of my uh, roots in Jesus because um, I was always a reader of the Bible from my earliest years of reading. And Jesus was my fascination and primary focus of study and, and, and perusing what I call perusing in the scriptures. Yes. And I recognized that, that in my attitude about racism, um, in my turning the other cheek, in my resisting the wrong, without imitating the wrong, I fundamentally was trying to be obedient to chapters five to seven of the Gospel of Matthew, of the book of Matthew. Trying to be fundamentally aware of a major um, set of teaching of Jesus, perhaps um, including the small percentage of his teachings that was somewhat unique to him. Uh, yes. Uh, um, more so than anywhere else, because uh, I'm of the mind that Christianity has gone wrong in not understanding that Jesus, the Jew, came out of the Hebrew Bible and came out of the great uh, prophetic vision of religion, religion of a God of creation, God of love, God of truth, who's uh, encompassed the entirety of creation with compassion and love. So Jesus came from that, from that uh, wing of religion out of the, out of the Hebrew Bible. Um, and it's one of the correctives that Christianity needs to do, and that many scholars and some denominations like the Episcopal Church have been trying to correct uh, in the 21st century in every way they can. Indeed. My own denomination, UMC, is still stuck in some of the junk <laughs> of early <laughs> Christianity. <laughs> now wants to split yeah. over one of those junky things, uh, over uh, whether or not uh, gay, lesbian people are human beings. Yep. They were created by the demagogue or Satan. <laughs> rather than by the God of life, God of creation. So, yeah. um, uh, but one of the correctives that Christianity has to do is to break uh, with that Christianity that came out of the Roman Empire uh, and uh, get, get into the business of the Jesus of the four books yeah. that we have, and the Jesus of history and the Jesus of faith. Yeah. So um, anyway, yeah, so I decided I was convinced that not being allowed to go to Africa 
was a gift of God because I was convinced that by going to India, I would be able to continue my studies of Gandhi. I see. And, um, and, and uh, would be able to go to Warda. His, I did do that. I went to a couple of his uh, ashrams locations, one not too far away from uh, uh, Nagpur in Metta Pradesh and um, met uh, Nehru, met a number of other people in the Congress party who were all active in the independence movement and the nonviolent struggle. So, um, and I have a book on my desk that I teach from every year that I bought in Nagpur, which was one of Gandhi's volumes published in India in 1942, in fact, called uh, Nonviolence in War and Peace. Mm. Um, it's old and tattered, but uh, <laughs> it's still very useful. Sure. Anyway, so yes, uh, going to India was, uh, in my mind, God-given, and it allowed me to enrich my studies of nonviolence. I'm going to bring us now to after the three years in India, after immerse, immerse, immersing yourself more in um, Gandhian understanding of nonviolence, and you're coming back to Oberlin with mm -hmm. some very uh, important and uh, logical strategies for how you were going to complete your education and then go on to do something else. And then having all of that interrupted again, I think by God, that night at Oberlin when you had dinner with Martin King. All right, uh, Ed, I think yes. the book, The Children, has the story more accurately. I'm ah. not sure about that. Okay. I think I, I reread that book last year just to see what kind of uh, details David had done. And I think that story is more correct there than in the force more powerful in, or in other places. Ah, uh, okay. Now, let me just, let me, I, I, let, me, let me say something to you. Yes. By 1952, as I finished my college degree and all, I was convinced that I had been exposed to a pathway that I could call nonviolent precisely because we black people were going to have a major movement that would begin the shaking of the foundations of segregation and racism and fear and violence in the United States. I knew that was going to happen. Uh, I was somewhat dismayed in college, being a young student. <laughs> I was somewhat dismayed that black people had not picked up on nonviolence as a fierce uh, tool of dismantling the wrong. Uh, I was dismayed that as I read about Jim Farmer and George Hauser and the sit-ins around the University of Chicago where they were students, I was dismayed that the black community in Chicago had not discovered their effort to desegregate restaurants 
and theaters and other places around the University of Chicago and made it a major campaign. I was dismayed that nothing had happened. Uh, oh. that, that in Los Angeles, where there was a similar attempt at the uh, sit-ins, the black community seemed to let it go by unobserved. <laughs> uh, not um, noticing. So, and I said some harsh things back then about this, about Negro leadership not being up to date. Um, anyway, but I was convinced there was going to be a major movement. That's what I was, had been prepared for and that I would be a part of it. So uh, the, the children describes my elation. Um, the book, The Children, describes my elation the day I learned in Nagpur, India, December of 1955, of the Montgomery bus boycott and learned the name of Martin Luther King Jr. I had no idea where this movement would break out. I had no fanciful notions that Jim Lawson would somehow be the spokesperson or the icon of that movement. Right. I knew that I was going to be involved as, as underground organizer <laughs> a boots a boots man <laughs> and so i was overwhelmed with the reality when it happened because i knew this was precisely what i had been told was going to happen and wow. there, is a, there is a description of that in the children because i told david helberstam all of that and why no one has read David Helberstan, I don't know. <laughs> because let, if me they hold, read, let me hold the book up so if, everybody can see what if we're talking they had about. Read, and David wrote, published that book around 2000. But right. if they'd read David Helberstan, book to children, they would have learned of, of that extraordinary experience that I had uh, reading on the front pages of the Nagpur Times that Negroes boycott in Montgomery, Alabama. I sure would like to, to be able to get a hold of that headline from that English, uh, uh, the, the Nagpur Times, that was an English paper in, um, in Nagpur. Anyway, English uh, a reader's paper. So, uh, so I knew, and I told my next door neighbor who was a biologist, Chris, Chris uh, Theopolis, that uh, I would be going back to the United States and be getting involved in that movement. But I had, I had business of preparation I needed to do. I was a deacon, ordained deacon in the United Methodist Church, therefore with responsibilities, but I had planned to be an elder. And so I in, uh, enrolled at Oberlin primarily because it was in Ohio, and because that meant I could re-enter in my family's life around Ohio. Yep. And I would do, I would start there and probably finish it there, I thought, you know. Yeah. Uh, but on February 6, 1957, uh, the theologian Harvey Cox was a young campus minister at Oberlin. He and I had become friends. And uh, Harvey... Uh, heard King someplace and decided to get King to Oberlin 
So on February 6, 1957, uh, Harvey made sure that I knew King was coming. And also Harvey made sure that Martin King and I would face to face each other in a small luncheon immediately after his 11 o'clock lecture in a standing room only crowd at, in the, in the, uh, in the uh, auditorium. And um, so uh, I walked over to the, I walked to the dining room. It was a, a small dining room, not much larger than my uh, library here. And I um, got there and there was no one around. <laughs> and I, I walk into the room, the tables are set. Then um, I hear a noise at the door again and I turn around, there's Martin King by himself. He's found his way to the dining room. So I walk back to the door and greet him as he comes in the door. And uh, we shake hands and we have our first conversation. Now I know who he was, obviously. Um, he did not know who I was, but when he learned that I'd been a missionary in India, he was curious. And we discovered that we had a great deal in common. Uh, and so uh, I was planning to finish my graduate degree or more and then moved south to pastor. And Martin said, you come now, we need you now, we have no one like you. And of course, uh, that again is the hand of God because King knew better than I that this um, movement to dismantle racism, segregation had begun and that the Montgomery bus boycott was the first major campaign. Um, and the big question that King had and more than a hundred uh, clergy who supported the Montgomery boycott, people like uh, um, Matthew McCollum of South Carolina and Kelly Miller Smith in Nashville and a host of others who surrounded him and supported the Montgomery bus boycott from 55 on and wanted to see it happen and thought that it was the wave of the future they were looking to see how the next Montgomery boycott could happen. And of course, they weren't looking for another bus boycott. Uh, they were looking for the next step. Yes. And I discovered that was the case. And so I, uh, I told Martin King, I very quietly, I would come as fast as I could come. Amazing. Yeah, so uh, I told King I would come as fast as I could come, as soon as I could come. That meant I, and that then put before me this fact that I was going to have to drop out of graduate school <laughs> because uh, that's, that's the way it was. I, 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 I knew instantly I couldn't finish my degree at Oberlin. I'd have to find another place. And so my move to Nashville was actually more uh, because Vanderbilt Divinity School was probably the best theological school in the southeastern part of the country. Right. It was far superior to Emory or to Duke. And, um, and so actually the, my move to Nashville, Matt, Nashville was chosen primarily because I could transfer her, all my work to Vanderbilt down the road and of course that's what I did and 
in the fall of 58, I did transfer my work to Vanderbilt and, be, and begin to finish that uh, master's degree in theology. So now you have gone through federal penitentiary, three years in India, immersion in Gandhian nonviolence, started in one direction with your planned life, and you and Martin King come together, have this amazing conversation where you have all of this simpatico and all of these common interests and passions, and he persuades you to come to the South and you choose Nashville and Vanderbilt Theology School. No, Martin doesn't persuade me to come South immediately. He, his, his thing, Martin is the instrument for me to do what I knew I had to do. I see. That's much, I understand. I, 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 I was thinking I could finish a college, you know, a graduate degree in, in, in the North. Yes. And that wasn't in God's plan. Yes. And Martin King, of course, was the instrument of God's purpose. Uh, I, wow. He was the spokesman who I did not know until Montgomery bus boycott happened. So Martin immediately came from, became for me my Moses. Ah. Oh, my, my leader. I, I had no, I had, <laughs> I had no qualms <laughs> about being able to work next to Martin Luther King Jr. I had no hesitations, no uh, ambitious feelings about it. He was right. my, he was the prophet that God had promised who would be in that uprising of nonviolence in the United States, which I would become a part of. And I recognize now I was the primary strategist and organizer. I, yeah. I had 10 years of studying nonviolence out of a Jesus perspective and a Gandhi perspective right. was, was God's purpose. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I practiced it in many different ways without fear and without hesitation. Um, um, so um, for me, I was simply follow, pursuing a course of action that was basically arranged for me. And where I forgot along the way, uh, God saw to it that other people reminded me and that I stayed on course. I love that corrective, Jim. That's, yeah. That is beautiful. So now I'm going to read a quote to you about you. And my effort here is to describe the historic effect of your, of all that you've just said in the last two sentences, mm -hmm. plus your time in Nashville. And here's the quotation. It says, using nonviolent action to secure human rights and justice, changed the course of American history in 1960 through 61. And the course of American history changed by doing what James Lawson taught the students what and what they learned in the sit-ins. And on top of that, I simply want to say that one of your students, Diane Nash, said, a huge 
step toward the outcome of eliminating segregation was that we changed ourselves. We changed ourselves into people who could not be segregated. It's hmm. a good statement. Isn't it? I like it. I do too. Yeah. <laughs> I liked it. I like it. So if that is a summation, historically accurate, of what happened between the day you stepped foot into Nashville, Tennessee, and the success of the Nashville sit-in movement, will you unpack the lessons that you were teaching those students, the essence of nonviolence, the essence of satyagraha, the importance of changing yourself? What is it? I, um, it's important to know, Ed, it seems to me, that um, in spite of my great um, sense of community and friendship and family with people like Diane Nash and, uh, and uh, John Lewis and Paulina Knight, who was one of my favorite people out of Nashville, who was C.T. Vivian and Kelly Miller-Smith and a whole host of people that many of us really did not understand the fact that we were caught up in an unfolding history that none of us really understood. And the written accounts of Nashville, I think, for the most part, miss the story. Because the story is not primarily about um, any one of us. The story is about a spiritual, uh, highly biblical movement that because it is what it is, both meant personal transformation, personal discovery of the power of the gift of life that God gave us. And also, therefore, the transformation of the society. I don't that, no, know if that makes that much sense, but it seems to me that's the picture. What I be, was able to begin teaching in the fall of 59, uh, for, in preparation for desegregation of downtown Nashville, I started teaching from the moment I hit the streets in Nashville when I moved there in early January of 1958. My, my, one of my first assignments, and I went to the South with a job, the Fellowship of Reconciliation, of which I was a member, 
um, asked me to become the Southern Secretary of the FOR. Um, and therefore, I, they financed my move to the Southeast and to the emerging nonviolent movement. And my, the, one of the first assignments I had, uh, uh, had been written by my field supervisor, so that when I landed in Nashville, got settled in my apartment, the next step was moving. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, and the first assignment he, uh, Glenn Smiley, had arranged for me was to go to Little Rock and begin meeting with the Little Rock Nine, who had been through hell. <laughs> their families, their friends, their colleagues from Dunbar High School. Um, they, the school suit against segregation in Little Rock had been going on by the local parents who wanted better education for their children. And I want to, I want to explain that in detail. Okay. Okay. Dun, Dunbar High School, which was the black high school, the only black high school in Little Rock, had no science laboratories. Wow. My. I'm just going to say this blank because the country doesn't know the story. There were kids at Dunbar High, and I shouldn't call them kids. They were teenagers, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th graders, who were preparing to go into dentistry and medicine, who wanted to teach biology. They did not have the academic foundation at Dunbar High. Yeah. Yes. They did not have the textbooks. I mean, I hope the, the, the discussion in the United States about race is so inadequate. Yes. So in actual fact, when the parents and the NAACP suing for desegregation in Little Rock asked Dunbar High School's people uh, about if if you would be prepared to transfer to Central, at least 85 black students said, we'll go. Wow. Wow. Because they were ambitious to get the education they wanted and that they knew Dunbar High, in spite of the joy of being there in a wonderful community, did not have the wherewithal, the facilities, the teachers, the laboratories, the textbooks <laughs> that they needed to do what they wanted to do in life. So oh, 85 students said, we'll go. The federal court and the local school board, which was all white, selected only nine. Now, what a great difference it would have meant if 85 pre-med students, pre-lawyer students, pre-educated stu students who were seeking ambitious work yes. in the future, if 85 had gone rather than nine. Right. Yes. So, I get so it. The, the all-white school board and the all-white federal court locally decided only nine. 
those nine students caught heck. Their families began to become uh, around the clock recipients of death threats and phone calls and harassment of all kinds. Yes. The students themselves were subject to physical assault and abuse of every kind. Right. Uh, President Eisenhower had to federalize the troops because KKK people, white citizens, council people, uh, uh, conservative citizens of America, people from a five-state area flowed into Little Rock from Mississippi, from Alabama, from Tennessee, from Missouri, from Oklahoma, and turned the streets into a major riot. Yeah. Now, again, you see, this is a story <laughs> so many people do not see the depth of the in injustice, unjust structures that have been established and put into the political, the economic, the social life of the nation. Not just the personal attitudes of some people in terms of being racist. Right. But the abject educational structures that said that black folk could not be educated, should not learn to read or write, could not be mathematicians or pastors or educators, didn't have the capacities for it. That's what was acted out in Little Rock. So, and the Little Rock Nine, uh, an astonishing group of young people, just extraordinary. I, the first day, uh, Glenn Smiley and I drove into um, Little Rock, Arkansas from Nashville, where we stayed at, um, of some medical faculty homes. You couldn't stay in any hotels, there were none there. So Glenn and I, a white man, a white United Methodist preacher, and Jim Lawson, a black United Methodist preacher, uh, stayed in homes of FOR members in Little Rock who wanted FOR uh, to meet the Little Rock Nine. Again, let's let's just say that FOR means Fellowship of Reconciliation. Yes, keep going, keep going. A group that had embraced Gandhi nationally and taught Gandhi because Gandhi showed so many pacifists that love is power. Yes. <laughs> that life is power. <laughs> and and it's the power that can change not only persons but the United States. So uh, that first evening, we met the Little Rock Nine in the living room of, of Mr. and Mrs. Bates. Uh, Daisy Bates was the state president of the NAACP, and her husband was a major editor, an NAACP supporter and uh, operative. So we met, I met there all nine of these um, young people. Now, uh, my, I, I had, I have skills as a youth pastor because I grew up in United Methodist Youth Fellowships in Ohio and Midwest and learned lots of skills. So my first approach to the students was to find out how they were and to figure out who they were and to get them to tell me a little bit about their story. Um, they had been, uh, the schools had been shut down 
The National Guard was federalized by President Eisenhower. They had to have protection by national, federalized National Guard who were in the hallways to stop the brutality on, on the street outside the uh, Central High. So um, I tried to get their story. What their story was this, briefly as I remember it. It was this. We've been told by our lawyers, by our parents, by our pastors, that we, and this is the word uh, they gave me, uh, you, uh, we cannot fight back. And Glenn and I had them describe what that meant. I will confess to you that as a young whippersnapper, new on the field, that their statement, we were told not to fight back, in a sense, angered me. Right. Because again, I didn't understand what was going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I tried to help them see, I tried then that very first night to help them see that what their parents and supporters meant by not fighting back is you cannot fight back like those who are fighting you. You cannot imitate the enemies of school desegregation, the young people in the school who are trying to drive you out, or the white mobs that are trying to hurt you and kill you. Uh, and I remember that one of the things I said to them, you know, is you do have to learn how to fight back. Because if you don't fight back, you'll probably destroy your character, destroy your life. You're in an extraordinary adventure. But if you cannot use your heart and mind and soul and your spirit, and molding of your character to fight back, <laughs> to resist the wrong that you are subject to, and I used the story of um, Jackie Robinson, who from 47 desegregated Major League Baseball. Um, and uh, that he was told he couldn't fight back for the first year. I told him what that meant. The practical, tactical um, uh, pragmatism of that instruction. Um, if you uh, fight evil with evil, you escalate evil. You do not defeat it and you do not disperse it and dissolve it. Um, that evil cannot overcome evil. Only good can overcome evil. Only compassion and truth can overcome the wrong and dissolve the wrong. Uh, so, um, to this day, that group of people now, nine people, there are now eight of them, and I are close comrades because I went in and out of Little Rock almost every week for three or four months um, um, uh, until Ernest Green graduated from Central High. And I went to the graduation and arranged for Martin Luther King Jr. to be at that graduation. So um, that, was, that was my first major assignment at the FOR 
uh, gave me as uh, as the uh, what I began to call myself as a troubleshooter, uh, going into crisis situations and seeing the situation, and and my a major teaching thrust was to teach the power of the Montgomery bus boycott, which anyway had inspired most of the people, most black people in the South were in armored, uh, in uh, enamored by Martin King and Rosa Parks and that whole story. So it was a story of great power for them, of great inspiration. Um, so Jim, I, I need to go back uh, a couple of things and, and, uh, and then come back to the Diane Nash quote, which you liked, and then we'll wrap up for today. Mm -hmm. um, you said that um, you discovered that you all were caught up in an unfolding of history that really was going to take place. Mm -hmm. And it was a spiritual, a highly biblical movement. Not any one of you in particular, but there was a spirit coming into you that caused transformation in your lives because of the gift of life, mm -hmm. the power of life. Mm -hmm. And I want to link that with the first thing you said to those Little Rock Nine in the Bates's living room. And that is, it's not that you don't fight, but you fight with what can win over evil, can overcome evil. Right. And that is compassion and good and this power of life. And, and then Diane Nash says that we were being changed into people who would not be segregated. Exactly. Are these three things, I just yeah. want to, yeah. yeah. Okay. They're, they're part of the same, they're part of the whole spirit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and I maintain, you see, that where the, many of the accounts of what they call the civil rights movement fail, is they fail to see, for example, that Martin Luther King Jr. was called. Yes. Ah. <laughs> Jim Lawson was called. Yeah. Kelly Miller Smith was called. Johnny Carr was called. Uh, Jefferson Thomas, a deacon in the Baptist Church in Little Rock, the father of Jefferson Thomas of Little Rock Nine, was called. <laughs> Johnetta Hayes in Nashville was called, was moved by the Spirit of God. <laughs> so that, that uh, C.T. Vivian, Diane Nash, a whole slew of people were actually moved from the inside Sometimes they did not recognize what that inside mover, who that inside mover was. But it has to be understood, for an example, that in almost every place that I began conversations and whatnot, I began with Jesus as a nonviolent practitioner. Yeah. Math, uh, Luke 4, the book of Exodus. I began by interpreting biblical scriptures as being at the heart of that spirit that had caught us and wanted to use us. Wow. I mean, let's breathe deep on that one. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, I, I remember for an example, 
in the early 60s, I went to, uh, I was in, in Memphis as a pastor. Um, Diane, and, Diane Nash and Jim Bevel had arranged for me to go to Fannie Lou Hamer's home in Ruralville, Mississippi, to do a workshop on nonviolence. This is 62. So I drive to Ruralville and go to home. There are about 20 odd people in that large living space. Um, and I use as my frame of reference from the first moment about nonviolence, Luke 4, 15 or 16 to the end of the chapter, to 30 or 31, whatever it is. The story of Jesus returning to Nazareth, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Yes. And then facing a, a crowd of people in the synagogue in Nazareth, and they're becoming very upset with him and his walking through the crowd and going on his way. They intended to do him bodily harm. He walks through the midst of them. I interpret that as his nonviolent approach, that he uh -huh. walked through the midst of them and went on his way. Uh, uh -huh. by, by this time, I could, I could quote from John Wesley. Hmm. Uh, at least five times in John Wesley's journey, he tells how he had to walk through mobs in the streets of England <laughs> in his in his crusading and preaching, and he even tells how he did it after the first and second time. He he describes what he did in order to walk through a mob of angry Englanders who were angry him not knowing why they were angry. Yeah. To, to do him bodily harm. And not one time was he done bodily harm. And uh, he describes this in his journal. I haven't read that for a couple of years now. I need to go back and review it. So, um, but I, I started almost always with the book of Exodus or with Luke uh, 4. And because I'm talking to people who have, of the church. I'm talking mostly to people of the church, people who've been baptized uh, and all, people for whom church represented a saving force, a healing force. So um, I always started, therefore, with with Jesus and the Bible and insisted that Christianity had failed many of us because it had not made uh, love as the power of God for change and the power by which you can endure and persevere did not make that a primary teaching for people, primary emphasis of the life of Jesus. So powerful. So, Jim, we've been talking for an hour. Yes, I noticed. I'm proposing that we stop and take a break, and then we'll have our second hour. Okay. Let me um, yeah. say thank you for this hour. That has been magnificent. Mm -hmm. And uh, we will continue.
thank you for being with us, everyone from St. Luke's Church. And uh, we will see you next Sunday. Goodbye.